0: Welcome to this Touch Podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Infectious Diseases. In this podcast, three experts explore the design and applications of mRNA-based vaccines, including their use in the prevention of COVID-19 and the future prospects for the prophylaxis of other respiratory infections. This activity is supported by an educational grant, from Moderna and is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. In our first interview, Dr. Anna Blakeney summarises the rationale for mRNA-based vaccines, including how their design and delivery mobilise immune responses, as well as the advantages and caveats associated with the mRNA vaccine platforms.
1: Hello, my name is Anna Blakeney, and I am an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia in the Michael Smith Laboratories and the School of Biomedical Engineering.
0: How do mRNA vaccines work?
1: Our goal with any vaccine is to train your immune system to recognize a foreign pathogen without actually being infected by this pathogen. We do this by introducing a piece of the pathogen, a small protein, usually from the surface, which is called the antigen. So there's many ways that we can introduce this antigen into your body. Which we can do, you know, typically with an activated viral vaccine or the protein itself, or more recently by using an mRNA vaccine. An mRNA vaccine works by entering your cells through endocytosis and being released into the cytoplasm through an endosomal release mechanism that we'll get into later. Once the RNA is in the cytoplasm, it engages with the ribosome, and the antigen is translated, which then goes on to be processed by the by your immune cells. So there's a couple of different ways that RNA induces an immune response. The first is through innate immunity. So because our bodies have evolved to recognize foreign RNA, as lots of viruses are made of RNA, uh, a typical mRNA vaccine is recognized in the same way, which is referred to as the interferon response. So because of this, mRNA vaccines are considered to be self-adjuvanting, whereas they raise these alarm bells without adding anything else into the vaccine. So this is what triggers uh, what's called your innate antiviral response. But in in addition to this, mRNA also triggers your adaptive immunity, which comes in kind of three different flavors. So your CD4 T cells, which uh, works by helping um, secrete cytokines that support cell mediated and humoral immune responses. It also invokes CD8 positive T cells, which are uh, responsible for killing uh, infected cells by cytotoxic mechanisms, as well as uh, B cells, which are responsible for antibody secretion. There's a number of advantages and disadvantages that messenger RNA vaccines have compared to other vaccine platforms. So some of the advantages included include uh, rapid development of modified versions. So once we have an mRNA vaccine, it's very modular and easy to make a new one, just like we did at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, It's also optimal for antigen expression. So we're able to express just the protein that we want um, and get a lot of that protein expressed, which is very good for uh, mounting a good immune response. We are one another advantage is that it's also able to elicit both humoral and cellular adaptive immunity, which is um, a, a good way of training your body to recognize these pathogens. And it doesn't matter whether uh, which immune mechanism um, you're going for, you get both the humoral and cellular immunity. It doesn't require a live pathogen, so it's much safer to produce on a large scale, and it has this self-adjuvant effect, so we don't need to add anything else into the vaccine to get this training of and um, triggering of your immune system. However, there are also a number of disadvantages to mRNA vaccines, so there can be severe reactions to the polyethylene glycol component. There's also a potential risk of myocarditis in selected groups, and it As for now, there is a requirement of cold chain transportation and storage. So they have to be stored in freezers and this can um, impede their distribution worldwide.
0: How do the design of the mRNA sequence and its structure affect vaccine efficacy and safety? So there's a number of
1: very important components for mRNA. So I'll start with the five prime cap. This is important for increasing the translation of the mRNA. It regulates processing. It shields the mRNA from innate immunity, as well as protects it from exonucleases. At the end of the mRNA, it has a three-prime poly-A tail, which also helps with the mRNA stability. So this stabilizes, stabilizes and promotes translational efficiency. Um, and we've also found that the tail length of this poly-A tail is proportional to the efficiency of translation. There's also an untranslated region at both the five prime and three prime end of the mRNA. This helps with ribosome recognition, uh, recruitment of the translational machinery, and structural folding. Finally, with the open reading frame, this is where we actually put our antigen or protein. Uh, This is the coding region for the vaccine sequence, um, and the codon Uh, modifications of this is very important. So this helps with the translational efficiency, the mRNA abundance, the protein folding, and the antigen stability and, and immunogenicity. In our typical mRNAs, we also use modified nucleotides, which helps reduce the recognition of the innate immune system to mRNA. So another great aspect of mRNA vaccines is the flexibility of the design. So if we think back to the original designs of the COVID mRNA vaccines, it's very simple to just make some small changes in the code and then produce those in exactly the same way that we made the original mRNA vaccine. So it's a very modular platform. We also have some new technologies coming online now, such as self-amplifying RNA, which is kind of a next-generation messenger RNA. Uh, SARNA has very similar components to a messenger RNA, except that it also encodes a viral replicase. So this replicase allow the, allows the RNA to make exact copies of itself once it gets into a cell, and because of this, you get a much longer duration of antigen expression, but another advantage is that we may be able to use a lower dose of mRNA if we use an SARNA compared to an mRNA.
0: What delivery strategies have been used for mRNA vaccines, and how do they affect their efficacy and safety? One of the main challenges with
1: challenges with mRNA vaccines is getting the mRNA into cells. Our mRNA is very susceptible to degradation and it's a large negatively charged molecule so it doesn't get taken up into our cells spontaneously. So scientists have explored a number of different delivery strategies to get RNA into cells such as polymer-based, peptide-based, virus-like replicant particles, and cationic nanoemulsions. But the leading delivery technology in the field is called lipid nanoparticles. So lipid nanoparticles are a nano-sized vesicle that is able to get the RNA past the cell membrane. Um, It encapsulates the RNA completely in the particle and is composed of four different lipids that each have a different function. So the first and probably the most important is the ionizable lipid. So it's charged at a low pH, but neutral at a a neutral pH. And so what this allows us to do is to formulate the RNA inside the particle uh, and then bring it back to a neutral pH for um, the actual administration. The ionizable lipid is an essential component. It mediates the mRNA binding with the core of the lipid nanoparticle, and it facilitates the endosomal escape. So once the the lipid nanoparticle gets into the endosome, uh, the endosome matures and the pH drops. And as this happens, the ionizable lipid, again, becomes charged and releases the, the RNA from the endosome. There's also helper lipids in the LNP. This helps support the lipid bilayer. It promotes endosomal fusion and can also determine the target organ specificity. Another component is cholesterol, which confers the LNP stability. It also promotes endosomal fusion and aids the vaccine complex uptake. Finally, we have the pegylated lipid, which helps to reduce LNP aggregation. It minimizes the nonspecific uptake by immune cells, and it also determines the circulation rate and immune cell uptake. There are also potentially side effects that are associated directly with the lipid nanoparticles. So this includes pain, swelling, fever, and a systemic inflammatory response.
0: Beyond COVID-19, in your opinion, what are the most promising applications of mRNA vaccines in the near future? I think
1: it's an incredibly exciting time to be in the field of MRNA technology, but one of the most promising applications for me is using MRNA for personalized cancer vaccines, wherein a doctor can go in, take a sample of a patient's tumor, sequence that, and see what proteins are on the surface of it and may be immunogenic, and then prepare a personalized MRNA vaccine that trains your immune system to attack that specific cancer. So because MRNA vaccines are so modular, it is feasible to do this on a per patient basis. And I think this is one of the areas where mRNA can really make an impact.
0: Thank you for those interesting insights, Dr. Blakeney. Now let's move on to our next interview with Professor Oliver Cornelli, who will take us through the current clinical trial and real-world evidence for mRNA-based COVID-19 vaccines, alongside the latest guideline recommendations for use.
2: Hello. My name is Oliver Carnelli, I'm a professor and the director of the Institute of Translational Research and also the scientific director of the Clinical Trial Center CTCC here at the University of Cologne in Germany.
0: How might mRNA vaccine platforms offer ongoing protection as new variants emerge?
2: One big advantage of the mRNA platform-based vaccines is that they can be adapted. So while we originally, late in 2020, had uh, two vaccines, which is, um, and both were directed against the wild type, what we today call the ancestral strain of SARS-CoV-2, in the meantime, there have been several changes, and we know that the original vaccines lost protection. Uh, or the uh, activity against uh, the, uh, the virus. So, what we uh, then saw was that, that rapid adaptation was possible, and we got bivalent vaccines against that original virus and against the Omicron variant of concern, BA.1. And then, on top, after that BA1 wave, when others became more prevalent, there were new vaccines, BA4 and BA5 directed, and recently a monovalent vaccine directed against XBB 1.5. So the most recent iteration. I think we are not at the end of that uh, of that procedure and that uh, evolution. So what is being done is that the mRNA composition is being changed, and that then induces immunity directed against the most recent strains and the most um, um, prevalent strains and those that raise the most concern.
0: What are the key safety considerations surrounding mRNA-based COVID-19 vaccines?
2: So what was found with mRNA vaccine, the efficacy perfectly outweighed the safety issues that there may be the safety concerns. So one aspect always with everything is hypersensitivity, right? So there can always be hypersensitivity to either the active substance or excipients that come with the vaccines. The uh, frequently or most frequently reported adverse events are, uh, and that would be the category with like 10% or even more is, of course, we all know that injection site pain, swelling, anathema, etc. But that is something that we see with many vaccines. And it's not a surprise because I mean you inject into that muscle, so there should be some reaction, ideally. If there is no reaction, and that is rather a concern, if there is a reaction, I tell my patients, well, okay, be happy because your immune system is now busy. And that is exactly what we wanted to do. But there are other symptoms that are more a concern, but they usually go away after at least, or the maximum of a few days. That would be a fatigue or a headache that might happen, or myalgia, chills. So it's all in the range of what we are used to with other vaccines and, of course, with uh, with infections. Right. So the warnings and precautions are. Uh, in the direction of an elevated risk of myocarditis and pericarditis, specifically in young male vaccinees. So that is something to keep in mind. Usually that happens during the first two weeks after injection. And it's more common after the second dose. So what the risk as such, the absolute risk. So how, how frequent is that? How frequent do I face an event? Well. With these numbers that we are looking at, we can refer to one million person years and uh, and evaluate how often, how frequent are these AEs, and there are adverse events like ischemic stroke or appendicitis or acute myocardial infarction or that myocarditis pericarditis, and they are in the range of between a hundred and two thousand per uh, 1 million person years. You will see stroke, appendicitis, and everything else what I mentioned. However, you will likely not see it more frequently than what you observe in your population that you care for uh, anyway uh, before you even started vaccination. And one has to keep in mind that the virus infection as such causes all of these um, adverse effects or all of these diseases, symptoms and signs of COVID-19 at a much higher frequency than the vaccines do.
0: What are the current guidelines and recommendations for COVID-19 vaccination and how do you apply them in clinical practice?
2: Thankfully, we can follow the guidance because the guidance always changes with the new pandemic waves or with the new um, variants of concern. So, the uh, so we should always refer back when we uh, note that there is new guidance from the WHO or from uh, regional or national or local uh, recommendations. And. The challenges that we have is, first of all, that the guidance changes pretty frequently as compared to other uh, vaccines, where the guidance usually is stable for many years. But with the rapid pace, with mRNA platform-based vaccines being adapted to the actual viruses and real diseases that we deal with, we see more changes of the guidance. and. What one can say generally, although the guidance in these different bodies from WHO all the way down to regional and local might differ from each other a bit or might have different days when they are finally being issued coming uh, to our hands, um, there are the key updates you should really focus on is whether there are new priority risk groupings and whether there are specific guidance for priority use, specifically if there is not enough vaccine. It's now a rarer issue than it was during the earlier days of the pandemic, but where, where clearly one had to triage and consider, well, I have only one dose, but five people, so who uh, should get that dose? Um, and, but we are now somewhat more relaxed at that aspect, I would say. Then another point is pregnancy, pregnant women. We all remember that in the old days, uh, pregnancy was seen as a contraindication to vaccination. Uh, Then we had to learn that during influenza waves, that was a very bad thing to do because pregnancy is some form of immune suppression and pregnant women are more vulnerable. So the current Recommendation is to definitely uh, not withhold the vaccine in pregnancy. Ideally, one would um, give the vaccine in the second trimester, um, and that is because you want to give it as early as possible. But we all always avoid the first trimester for obvious non reasons. So that is why it's the second, uh, the second uh, trimester, and. Um, then, other uh, recommendations where you see differences between um, the uh, general population and healthcare workers. So, healthcare workers should have another booster every 12 months. And that healthy children and adolescents, we may see some change there because there are some ongoing clinical trials, but currently they are being considered for primary series, and that differs from country to country actually. And, uh, and it depends on the context, disease burden cost, and other, uh, other aspects. With all of these numbers, like healthcare professionals give them another shot every 12 months, you always would need to factor in whether they had a infection with coronavirus during the last 12 months, because that would count as well. And uh, if that was the case, then you could actually add another 12 months to that last exposure.
0: Beyond COVID-19, in your opinion, what are the most promising applications of mRNA vaccines in the near future?
2: With the advent of a new platform, mRNA vaccines, and we all witnessing that they can be adapted and can react so rapidly. So now there is of course great enthusiasm, and I'm not an exception, I'm enthusiastic about these two. And and of course dreaming of oh what all could be done with these and I mean we know that we are looking for a vaccine against HIV for ages and and while many uh, patients with HIV uh, are now um, living with drug treatment chronic drug treatment and uh, and they do of course much better than than in the uh, 1980s still they have that chronic infection they don't. Get rid of it, and it would be fantastic to have a therapeutic vaccine or a vaccine before infection. Both aspects are being worked on right now, as I see from the literature. And but there are many, many others. So, influenza, for example, is uh, a, a pathogen of pandemic potential. Clearly, we know that it caused um, and influenza A specifically caused pandemics in the past. So, we would love to have a uh, better vaccine than the current tree or quadrivalent vaccines that we use. influenza is something that I would love to be able to prevent with vaccines because I see it in my hematology patients, and uh, and it's a terrible disease and it's of course easily transmittable. And uh, there are other um, other pathogens, rhinovirus. I mean, maybe not that important, but that would mean quite something if we could avoid renovirus uh, infection because we all have it at least once in a year, I guess. And then there is the whole range of herpes viruses. Um, it's all the human herpes viruses, all eight, but uh, I mean, if we could wipe out v one and 2, why not? I mean, that would be great because there is no reason why we should suffer uh, from these two Occasionally, with, uh, when, when uh, there are these blisters at the lips or are in immune suppressed patients, uh, it can cause a real, real concern. And then there are other pathogens. Well, one can do, go down the HHV, the human herpes virus list to the VCV. Well, we have a vaccine. That's cool. But uh, we don't have a vaccine against CMV, against Epstein-Barr virus, and then certainly not against HHV 6 and 7. These are viruses of concern in immune suppressed patients, as is KSHV, causing Kaposi sarcoma in immune suppression, specifically, of course, than in um, patients living with HIV and AIDS. So there is a whole lot of uh, viruses, and this list is not comprehensive, but these are my well, 15 or so favorite viruses that I would love to prevent with mRNA vaccines. And I know that many of these are uh, under development and, and even in clinical studies right now.
0: Thank you for sharing your perspective, Professor Corneli. In our final interview, Professor Anne Falsey will explore the potential future applications of mRNA-based vaccines for protecting against respiratory infections, based on our experiences with COVID-19 and ongoing clinical development programs.
3: Hello, my name is Anne Falsey. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York, here in the United States of America.
0: What have we learned from COVID-19 vaccination on the potential for mRNA-based vaccines in the prevention of respiratory diseases? So although RNA
3: vaccines have actually been in development for quite some time, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has really afforded an opportunity to understand how these vaccines can work and what potential side effects are. So we now know that efficacy has been confirmed in um, wide range of populations, vulnerable people, various conditions. Um, One of the great things about RNA is how rapidly it can be scaled up, uh, permitting it to adapt to um, new pathogens, emerging variants, and um, that's a real advantage uh, when you're dealing with um, a changing landscape. Um, and as I said, they've now been uh, used in millions and millions of people, and so we really have a good sense of efficacy and uh, safety. Um, and so one one of the a few of the caveats that we've learned along the way, there are rare but serious side effects. Um, the main being the myocarditis, pericarditis, that it's um, seen mostly in young men. Uh, and that's one thing associated with the RNA vaccines. Fortunately, it seems to be uh, relatively mild, and there have not been any deaths directly attributed to it. Um, there does seem to be a limited uh, duration of protection um, against infection, although I will say that the uh, duration of protection against severe disease it is quite good. Um, We've uh, struggled in COVID with uh, reduced efficacy when we have new and emerging variants. Um, And and that can be uh, an advantage of the RNA that you can, again, switch it up pretty quickly. One of the logistical problems with RNA vaccines is uh, thermostability uh, and ultra-cold storage requirements. And uh, I think that that presents some issues with equity uh, in um, resource-poor settings.
0: What novel mRNA vaccines against respiratory pathogens are in development?
3: So we learned a lot with uh, the mRNA vaccines with COVID. And so now there's uh, a fair amount of enthusiasm to use this technology against other viruses and, um, in particular, respiratory pathogens. One of the programs uh, to use this technology is against Epstein-Barr virus. And that is the cause of mononucleosis and could cause a fair amount of illness. And that program is, is moving along and studies are being uh, done. One that's fairly advanced is against uh, RSV, uh, known as respiratory syncytial virus. And that's a respiratory virus as it causes severe illness in very young babies and in older and frail adults with underlying heart and lung diseases. Um, the top line results uh, of a Phase three study are in and it looks quite good and effective against lower respiratory tract illness. And then one that's very um, appealing is using this technology for flu. And flu vaccines contain four different strains of flu virus and as we know, flu is very changeable and authorities have to guess each year which, which is going to be the circulating strain. The older technology with the protein vaccines was, um, you needed a fair amount of lead time, but um, RNA vaccines are very quickly adaptable should a new strain appear on the scene. Uh, and so we are looking forward to seeing the results of those studies. And then lastly, there are some combination studies. So there's a myriad of respiratory pathogens. One is human metapneumovirus, and then there are the parainfluenza viruses. So there's a program combining human metapneumovirus and para-influenza-3.
0: What developments in the design of mRNA vaccines could optimize efficacy and safety? So even though the
3: RNA vaccines are quite good, there are some um, improvements that might be considered. And one of the uh, techniques is what's called self-amplifying RNA. And that's where the RNA is combined with what's called a replicase. So it's uh, got embedded something that will lead the RNA to replicate itself in the cell. And what that might do is allow sort of a more prolonged uh, stimulation of the immune system and potentially better duration. Um, And it's also possible that you could use lower uh, doses of the, the vaccine. Uh, and that may be a, an advantage. Um, as I mentioned before, there's the potential to do multivalent vaccines, that is combine um, uh, stimulate, and stimulate immunity to several different pathogens. And this could be actually different viruses, like I mentioned with human metanemovirus and parainfluenza, um, but it also could be against different strains or variants of a single virus. So, you know, what comes to mind there is is COVID, Um, you know, that it's been very hard. We've been chasing different variants, and so you could uh, try to design a sort of universal vaccine incorporating uh, the major lineages uh, of a a single virus. I think one important thing that we have to work on is improvements in uh, storage requirements. something like freeze drying that would allow storage at higher temperatures for a more prolonged period of time. And this would go a long way to having um, it be more widely available globally and global equity. Um, And then there's novel routes of administration. Uh, One can uh, give an intranasal delivery. And what is hoped with that approach is that you might actually stimulate Uh, mucosal or nasal antibody and it would actually induce what we call sterilizing immunity. That is you don't get infected at all and then you can't transmit it to others. What we have right now is it it reduces symptomatic illness and particularly severe illness um, but maybe not optimal for preventing any asymptomatic infection.
0: Beyond COVID-19, in your opinion, what are the most promising applications of mRNA vaccines in the near future?
3: So the RNA technology for vaccines is is really exciting in many ways. And it's hard to choose one most important feature. I think that we've certainly, we always knew about the threat of global pandemics Um, and you know, theoretical is one thing, and living through a pandemic is quite another thing. And so we really need uh, vaccines that can be developed and scaled up really quickly. And, and now we have that with RNA. And so the potential uh, for pandemic vaccines is enormous. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I think they are in our future, hopefully not for quite some time. But the other thing that I think is pretty exciting is the ability to um, have multivalent vaccines and combine uh, different strains and different pathogens. Um, you know, as we have more adult vaccines, uh, you don't want people to feel like pin cushions. And if you can incorporate multiple pathogens, that would just be really terrific. Adult RSV for many years has been underappreciated uh, and underrecognized. But there's now very clear epidemiologic evidence um, that it is a significant cause of morbidity and mortality in older adults. Uh, just as an example, in the United States, there's roughly hundred to 180,000 hospitalizations and somewhere between ten and 15,000 deaths which can be attributed to RSV. The People that are most at risk are uh, those with advanced age and then individuals with underlying heart and lung conditions. And so having a vaccine that can actually prevent um, illness and especially hospitalizations and deaths would be very impactful. Um, I think one of the things that's also underappreciated is that it is a pathogen in long-term care facilities or nursing homes, and having a vaccine for our most frail elderly, again, could be very impactful. The RNA vaccines have shown to be very immunogenic and I think would be quite safe and well-tolerated. The COVID vaccines were very well adopted by the long-term care facility medical directors, and so I would hope that um, if uh, we can develop a successful RSV vaccine, that would be a population that would be um, very important.
0: Thank you, Professor Falsey, for sharing your insights. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access additional content on this and related topics at www.touchinfectiousdiseases.com.